0: Can you be the best in the world at any skill? No. Can I learn any skill? Of course I can. Of course you can't too. And the idea that you can't is like this delusional, self-protective belief. But it's not because I do anything particularly, I mean, advocate anything novel. Like there is no special insight. It's like practice things, reflective, deliberate practice, develop skills in an arbitrary direction. If you don't believe me, if you don't agree with that, go try literally anything.
1: I promise it'll work. This is Audience of One, and I'm your host, Spencer Keir. This podcast is a venue for me to follow my curiosity through conversations with leading thinkers and builders. My guest today is Emmett Shear. Emmett is the co-founder and former CEO of Twitch and a visiting partner at Y Combinator. We talk about agency, meta-learning, deliberate practice, coordination problems, parasocial relationships, positive sum games, and more. Please enjoy. So back in March, you announced that you were leaving Twitch. Um, And that's a pretty significant decision for somebody who's been with the company, uh, including the time when it was called Justin TV for 16-ish years. So I'm always curious about people's thought processes when they make big decisions like that. Are there heuristics you found for knowing when to stay the course on something versus uh, make a a big decision or change it in a big direction like that?
0: I think you have to make one of two errors. You're either going to stay in things too long or you're going to not stay long enough. And especially in startups, under-persisting tends to be a bigger problem than over-persisting. And so I think that in general, in startups, people should bias towards really persisting longer uh, and be willing to live with the fact that means that they might stick with things longer than they have to, because the alternative is not sticking with things long enough. And that's a that's a much bigger killer in startups because almost everything I know that has succeeded went through some phase, you know, both Justin TV and Twitch went through multiple phases like this where it didn't look like it was going to work necessarily. And if you give up just because the odds don't seem super great at that very moment, you're basically guaranteeing failure. Whereas like if you persist a little too long, you, you might get four shots on goal instead of five. But like that's a survivable downside. Um, I would say that rule probably changes if you have uh, a different set of trade-offs. So, like I think people who are climbing the corporate ladder probably, I would guess, undershift jobs on average, because I think if you're climbing the corporate ladder, the temptation—it's always—it's easy to just go for the promotion at your current job. The temptation is not to rock the boat. It's—it's it's relatively straightforward, but actually. If the people I know who are most aggressive about their career and most successful at it jump jump jobs with fair regularity. Not not all not, not every one or two years, but but, but like fairly regular. They don't spend 15 years in one job. That's too long. And so I think it probably varies based on your domain quite a bit. Um, but speaking for startups, uh, my heuristic is persist longer than you think is seems wise because uh your bias is so strongly to give up because it was going to look like it sucks. Um, in, in my case, I decided to finally leave because I, uh, I didn't feel I was needed anymore. I felt like Twitch was doing well. And especially after the you know last few years, we'd grown so much. I felt like Twitch was really on a great trajectory. I felt like I had a solid team. And to be honest, it didn't seem like the company would die if I left. And that's a really weird feeling from a startup.
1: It's like, a bittersweet feeling.
0: Yeah, yeah. When you've when you've been running a startup for a while, the the whole time, like if you leave, it dies. Like it's dependent on you. It's dependent on you. And then at then at some point, you know, like if you succeed, it's not dependent on you. And once it wasn't dependent on me, I realized like I actually have a bunch of other things I want to do. Like this is this is really important to me that I get this right. But now that it's right, eh, do I need to be the one to like shepherds it through the next ten years? And like I could be. I don't think I'd be bad at it. But I don't think I'm required either. Um, and so then once I realized that, I think other things became more more exciting. Um and I was having a son, I just get you know, and so uh, you know, with a new with a having my first child, it really I think called into question where 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 do I want to prioritize my time? Like being a CEO of a big company, if you want to do a good job anyways, is like very time demanding. Do I really want that? Um and so, like it was that that was the proximate thing. Like, but like, how, I don't, if I if, it, if the company had still needed me, I might have tried to find a way to make it work with having a child. But then it's sort of the combination of those two things together.
1: What was it that you felt like uh, you would be able to do for your son in terms of attention or resources or support that you wouldn't have been able to do if you stayed on with Twitch? And and there's the obvious yeah. consideration with just time, but I imagine there's particular things you felt motivated to do.
0: No, it's, it really is time. I mean, it's, it's, it's time and flexibility, right? Like you're, when you're working on something like Twitch, you just, you have to take a lot, there's a lot of meetings, there's a lot of fairly rigid schedule. And if you move your schedule around a lot, it thrashes an entire company. And so you can, but you really have to not care about the people around you very much if you do that. And so I just decided, you know, it really comes down to time. You know, if I, if I had 48 hours in the day, maybe I would just do both. I don't think there's like a, I don't think there's any one specific thing I wouldn't get to do. Because with any one specific thing I could carve out, it could be compatible. I could carve out time for that one specific thing right. and figure out a way to make it happen. Um, it's the, it's having flexibility. It's when something, when something is happening, I can jump on it. I think that's
1: the thrill win. In a complex and rapidly changing future, I'm curious, and this is a two-part question. One is, what are the skills and mindsets you're hoping to cultivate in your son? And, and two is, what's the environment that you feel like is optimal for doing so? And you, you've written a little bit uh, on Twitter about um, seeing the deteriorating public education uh, environment, at least from a cost perspective. Um, And so I imagine you're maybe thinking about alternatives like home and micro and online schooling, but curious about first the skills and mindsets and second, the environment.
0: Yeah, I actually don't know that I think public schools are getting worse per se. I think that they're getting dramatically less efficient and, and they're worse than the counterfactual public school that could exist if we spent the money efficiently. But it seems to me like you're sort of getting a constant level of output and like, an exponential increase, the amount of uh, of of resources, which which is different. I'm not necessarily against public schooling, but I I do think. um, The one of the issues is there's. There's an increasing premium over time on what I think of as meta skills, because. It when you were growing up, when I was growing up and even more so when my parents were growing up. like. Learning how to cook, if you wanted to do it at a high level, required you go learn from someone who knew how to cook really well, and that meant like spending. There's like a substantial upfront cost to doing that. I can go learn from some of the best chefs in the world and watch them cook on YouTube, like right now. Right, like the the availability of of material to self teach has never been higher. Like you can. You can bootstrap yourself not only into academic skills, but into physical skills and and uh, even emotional skills. Like almost everything is there, if you have the meta skill of go find the material and and know how to teach yourself it, know how to practice it, know how to make it real for yourself. You don't need any kind of formal education at all. Actually, like it's all replaceable. Now, one of the best ways to get that meta skill is in a formal education context. Like I learned a lot about how how I learn through schooling. So this isn't like an anti-school thing. It's just sort of recognizing that it used to be, there's a bunch of things you had to go to school for. It's just not true anymore. You don't. And therefore I'm much more focused on questions of how are you, do you know how to, how to learn? There's a skill you want, you know, to acquire it. Uh, Do you know how to lead and follow in a group? Do you know how to uh, do you know to figure out what it is that you actually want, what your goals truly are? Um, Because that turns out to be uh, a really easy question to fail. And the more powerful the tools you have are, the more the more able you are to achieve those things, which technology makes us more and more able every year. The higher and higher premium is placed on knowing what you want. And being able to self-direct to go get it, and so I don't think schools, as they're currently designed, are optimized around these things. Um, and so I, you know, I don't know, but my son's only five months old. By the time that he's ready to go to school, there may be availability, and I don't, you know, maybe I don't have to go solve it myself. Like, you right. have plenty of time. By the time he's in high school, it'll be twenty, what, uh, like twenty thirty-seven or something. Um, so, like, I don't know what schools 23-7 will look like. So, it's possible there's <laughs> something off the rack that I can go get. But right now, I would say if I had to, if he, if I had to put him into school today, I would consider yeah. some kind of homeschooling or some sort of uh, uh, micro schooling. Presuming some sort of like parents banding together and making their own kind of micro homeschool, um, I would consider alternative options like that because I don't, I don't know of any like at least no middle school or high school that I think is doing a great job today. I do know of some, to be honest, I think Montessori does a pretty decent job at elementary. Like I actually honestly don't, a well-run Montessori school I think is like within 30 degrees of the right answer. Um, so like, that's a, it's a, it becomes a bigger problem, I think, as the kids get older.
1: One of those meta skills you were hinting at uh, is agency. And you, you've said on Twitter before that you think not only can you teach people agency, but that you've done it yourself a couple of times. Uh, and it's effectively a process of, uh, and, and I'm simplifying mm-hmm. this, but a repeated process of questioning their assumptions and making them think about the, the first kind of marginal step they can take. Um, I'm curious why you think more people aren't agentic and if that's kind of humanity's default or if it's a learned behavior and maybe it's kind of uh, it's suppressed or beaten out of them through school or culture
0: what you're trying to do with agency when you're trying to teach agency isn't so much you able to question their assumptions although that's I think that's a, the, one of the most important tools you use along the way it's that people have this setting this like uh, this hyper prior about themselves that informs all their priors about all kinds of things including new priors that they Invent on this on the spot new assumptions, and the hyper prior is sort of like: it, Do I believe that coming up with a reasonable plan, like just if I just try to come up with a reasonable plan and then I like attempts to execute on the plan, and then I, if it doesn't work, I just like see what isn't there and I just do it again until it works. Do I believe that will work? Like in my heart, do I really believe that will work? Do I believe that I can get results? whatever result I want will will probably come about if I just keep doing it. And most people in their heart believe the answer to that question is no. They don't. They don't. They run into things all the time where they're like, well, I would like that, but. I don't see a pathway to it that is like meets some bar for like likelihood of success. And so I'm just like going to not going to try Like, what it feels like on the inside is not I'm not going to try. It feels like I can't even imagine how you would do that. I can't see right. a pathway. And like you can see a pathway is the, the this is the the this is the what the, the teaching does over and over again is like force them to stare at the fact that there is a pathway that you can see it, that it, you might fail, but there is a pathway there and you could try. And like the worst that happens is you don't succeed basically in most most of the time. And if there's some big risk, you could try to reduce the risk and then you could try like there's. You can always recurse again, and you can always try. Mm-hmm. Oh, if you're missing a skill, you could go learn the skill, and then you can, Like, I think that's all the the. Oh, well, you're missing a skill, or it's too risky. That's like an excuse. Like most of the time, the kinds of things people are failing to be agentic at, the things they're failing to act on, they are not particularly risky, and not they're not missing any skills. Actually, anybody could just go do it, um, and the barriers are much more. Um, this hyper prior, do you believe in yourself? And then um, willingness to fail. Like there's a, how painful is rejection for you? It's the same thing. uh, If you listen to the people who like try to teach pickup artistry, there's a bunch of bullshit they teach. But there's one thing they teach that's really, really true, which is like, if you want people to say yes, you have to be okay with them saying no. And if you go into a conversation being terrified of rejection and being not okay with the person you're hitting on, telling you, no, you are guaranteeing failure. First of all, you won't do it. This is too scary. And second of all, even if you do it, you'll be you'll be graspy and like and tight and tense about it and they they'll say no. And the same thing is true fundamentally for solving problems. If you go in and like failure at achieving your goal is unacceptable. And when you do this, it's got to work. Well, first, you're not going to try. It's terrifying. And so. There's a little bit, it's like this emotional work of like being being not, of courage, of being not terrified of, uh, of failure and get, gaining the courage to do it. And that has to be paired then with the belief that it's possible because you have plenty of courage. And if you can't see, if you can't see the pathway, you see people do this sometimes, very sad, where they, they have lots of, they have a courage, they have sufficient courage, but they, they don't point it at real plans. Um, which, yeah, for whatever reason, I don't know why, but they don't point it at real plans. And and then that also doesn't work. So you kind of need both. Um, and the issue is that these things are not you can tell someone this and they will nod at you. But the nodding isn't. Um. Uh, they haven't really ch- their, their internal belief hasn't really shifted.
1: They don't really see
0: themselves differently. That's like actually very hard to shift. That's a very expensive, time consuming thing, which is good, actually. Like you don't want to. It is a good thing that people do not have direct right access to their own hyper priors. They would people would destroy their own minds very rapidly if if they could edit things at will, you would make all kinds of bad decisions. It's good that it takes lots of persistent efforts over time, even if it's a little frustrating. Um, mm-hmm. But it does mean like you need years of pressure. I wonder. I don't know. I've never tried it. I've never tried creating a school for it. Right. Like maybe I've only seen people learn it over like many, many years, like seven to 10 years. Maybe you could do it in two years if there was like a focused school or something, but like not a week. That's like, there's no way. No one, it's not a skill you can learn in that kind of a time period.
1: One of the other meta skills, uh, that you also hinted at is this uh, idea of meta learning or the art of learning. Um, in a in another podcast interview, you said that there's no skill you could not learn, and I think that uh, on the note of the previous topic, that speaks to your sense of agency. Um, do you feel like you have some special insight about the the art of learning that maybe others don't? No,
0: like I really I really don't think I do. The the I the <laughs> uh, the people who don't believe this honestly haven't tried. Like, can you be the best in the world at any skill? No, there are many skills I will never be the best in the world at. Mm-hmm. Can I learn any skill to a like competency level where I can kind of do it? Of course I can. Of course I can. Of course you can too. And the idea that you can't is like this delusional, like self-protective belief. But it's not because I do anything particularly, I am mean, advocating anything novel. Like, practice, there's this meme online of like, do 100, do 100 of those. Right. right. Like draw, draw hundred owls. If You don't know how to draw an owl in the beginning. I promise you, by the time you if you actually put pen to paper and you mm-hmm. truly attempt to draw an owl a hundred times and do your best each time, every time you finish, like reflect a little on that last owl And could I, how could I have made it more owl like in the way that I want? By owl 100, I promise you, your hundredth owl will be like a pretty good, pretty fine, like. Maybe even actually quite good, depending on how much your raw talent you have. And like the people who disagree with this have not tried the experiment. They have not drawn a hundred owls. but like that's just like it's just one of these beliefs. It's so funny because it's it's like people who who disagree with some of the insights of meditation. And it's like, I don't I don't I'm not I don't need to argue with you about this. Have you tried sitting down and like just allowing your thoughts to flow without attempting to either stop or not stop them? For a while, like have you ever done that for like a you know th- thirty minutes? Okay, if you n- not like just tr- tr- first try it, then we'll talk. But like you know, you because you can come up with all kinds of crazy theories about how it should work, but then there's just like the fact of like empirically it does in fact work, and like that's how I feel about the skill learning thing. I don't have any special insight. There is no special insight. It's like practice things, reflective, deliberate practice, develop skills in an arbitrary direction. Go go. If you don't believe me, if you don't agree with that, go try literally anything. I promise it'll work.
1: The, the commonality well, here seems to be a bias towards experimentation or action. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, the, the one I, point I... the I w-
0: thing about the, uh, 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 you w- the real thing that people, of course, why it doesn't work, the reason why you can't learn the skill, kind of goes back to the agency thing, you won't actually draw a hundred owls. Like, uh, the, the, the people who say this have the general experience themselves that's true, in their case, when they try to do this, they, 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 they get discouraged on L5 and give up. And, and yeah, of course, if you don't do it, it won't work. That's also
1: true. I think uh, in in addition to that bottleneck, I think there's another bottleneck, uh, at least theoretically, which is people don't know what they actually like or or want to do. And partially you solve that through experimentation, but I think it's also through introspection. Um, You had this quote that was something like, or maybe you were, uh, you took this from somebody else, but it was the most common reason aspiring authors fail to finish a book is they don't actually like writing. Um, So in addition to the advice we just spoke about, what's your advice for people trying to find their thing? And if it is as simple as just, you know, arbitrary experimentation in a particular direction, uh, how do you know which experiments to prioritize? This is like the... The uh,
0: this is the essence of sort of self-improvement therapy shit that everybody uh has all this advice for. And like I've seen people find this stuff in different ways, and that there isn't like a one thing you want. You want lots of things and you like lots of stuff, um, and you like it in varying amounts, and the amount you the amounts you like it change over time. So it's one of these never-ending, like, there's no you don't figure it out and you're done. It evolves over time. Um and like it relies on, you know, there's some underlying things like not lying to yourself, like not being honest, being willing to be honest with yourself and see what you really, what you want and not, not override that with a, an idea of what you should want. Though, you know, one of the most common reflexes is what you should, is what you should want. But yeah, I think, I think a little bit of being empirical about it is important. I think you're trying to build a sensitivity to just noticing when you did something and it was really fun. And when you did something and it was kind of a slog and just like paying attention to that over time and noticing, like, I love the meetings where I get to, you know, uh, I, I love the process of leading up to an event where I get to like bring it all together and like the throwing the event, like when I threw that event, it was super fun. Or for me, it's like, I, I really like, uh, getting to get into the deep nitty gritty of like product strategy of like conversion rates and cohorts and trying to figure out what's really going on like i really enjoy that um the problem is that's helpful it has problems like no one likes playing piano for the first six months they play the piano it sucks you're not any good at it there's a bunch of things like you have to like get past some initial competency barrier and in those you just kind of have to have the idea that like maybe yes you have to kind of think you maybe would want it and then kind of push through it. And then when you get to the end of the pushing, you. You actually find out whether you did or not, and then you have to move back into sensitivity. And so it gets. I don't know, there's no there's not like a good. There's not a single good answer for it, I think. The most common single problem is fundamentally um, people confusing what they think it would be good, what they think it would be good to like, or what they think other people want them to like, or what would be prestigious to like, or what uh, will make a lot of money with like what they actually like. And, and you can usually solve for both actually. Like if you want to make a lot of money, you can usually find a way to do the thing you want to do. Not usually, not always, but usually there's at least one thing you really like that can also make money and you can like bring them together. But like first you have to not, you have to not lie to yourself and tell yourself, "Oh, I, I love doing corporate law." because it makes money, first, you have to be honest with yourself. and like, I guess I'm not even saying you shouldn't ever do things you don't like. I should do things I don't like all the time for instrumental reasons. Um, I try to avoid it some you know often, but like, sometimes the right thing to do is to push through and just do the thing you don't want to do, because it's like instrumentally val- valid to do so. What, I, what I'm really saying is like If you're doing that, don't lie to yourself. Like, if you're honest with yourself and you're saying, like, I want to sacrifice 80 hours a week of my life for 10 years to make money as a corporate lawyer. And this is like, this is the plan. It's what I want to do. Like, and you're biting that bullet and you still want to do it. It's probably a good idea. Like, you're probably right. That's like the right trade off for you. I don't know. Like, I would not want to, I would not stand to judge someone and tell them they're making the wrong decision. Hmm. I just think when you, when you do it, you know, don't, don't tell yourself, oh, I love, I love. This corporate law stuff. If you don't, um, so yeah, I guess that I, I I generally think it's a, there's an interesting theme along this. But like, there's no royal road. There's no royal road roads the best way to learn or the best way to like figure this out. Like, uh, people ask me like, how did you become? A, I became a pretty decent manager over time, and I did that by realizing I had it was a skill and realizing I had to get good at it, and then practicing it and trying it and, and like reading everything I could find. And I got coaching and I took feedback and I self-reflected and I experimented and tried things. I did all of those things. I didn't do just one of them. Um, And if you really cared about, if you really care about figuring out what is it that you really like and you take the problem seriously, you'll try a bunch of different stuff and some of it will work. And then you'll, and then you will know more than you did when you started. Um,
1: Right. Understanding that there's no Royal road here. How do you, how do you decide when to take kind of conventional wisdom at face value uh, versus no, you need to learn through experience or kind of first principles?
0: Um, I think those things are often intention. where there's, there's a sort of a, a default answer. And then when you think about it for yourself, you're like, but that's not the answer I would get. And I think you have to ask yourself when you run into that conflict, like, where did this conventional answer come from? Who are the people who came up with it? What sort of what's the uh, mimetic environment it has survived in and why has it survived? And if the answer is like, well, this is how every society throughout history, like small talk, people who are like small talk is bullshit and shouldn't exist. And like. Small talk is not a novel thing, like in one subset of society, it's like small talk has existed as far as I can tell. In in all societies, we are of which we are aware there is some version of small talk. That's like pretty strong evidence that there's something happening there. And if you don't understand it, that's a statement about you, not about the small talk. But. It doesn't so, make like, it any more fun. Yeah. And so I think that then like, well, actually, I think it's really, so small talk is actually a great example of this. It turns out it can be super fun. If you're not enjoying your small talk, we I mean, don't have to stand, you don't have to do small talk forever. That like, gets boring. But like, if you can't enjoy, you know, 120 seconds of small talk, you're doing it wrong like it's not that bad it's actually you you're probably unskilled at small talk because you haven't practiced it or tried it like try doing it and you'll probably learn that it's actually more fun than you realize you give it that first few months of practice and see can you get can you get really good at small talk and can you get good at transitioning from small talk to a deeper conversation um and i guess what i would say is if you want to throw away something like small talk you are if the chesterton's fence reasoning, if you want to throw away small talk or any other sort of, you know, load bearing thing that's conventional wisdom, um, if you can tell me a pretty a good reason why small talk's a great idea and people do small talk for a reason, by all means, skip it. But if you don't understand the purpose of small talk or why it exists, and it seems like it should just, it should, for, for, as far as you can tell, small talk shouldn't exist at all. You obviously have missed like clearly you've missed something. People are doing it for a reason, um, and so maybe you should maybe you should think more about that before you try to, you know, cr- eliminate small talk for our societies in general. I wouldn't say like you know if you want to experiment for yourself, fine, but like before you try to like social engineer anything, um, right? At a more personal level, like when do I decide at my own individual level that I want to go with? I don't know. It's just judgment. I don't think there's any specific special rule. Like I compare, I've got a plan. It's based on some set of principles that I, you know, I have some level of belief in and some things I'm like really sure of. And like, if they don't work, I'm like, it would be very, very surprising. And some things I'm like, you know, moderately sure of, but like, damn it if I know. Like, and then sometimes sometimes, and then also the conventional wisdom is of certain strengths. Certain things are like nigh-universal. Certain things are like, you know, seem like they're almost like 60-40. And so you sort of compare how strong they are and go with the one that's, that's stronger. And if I was picking a database for my next startup, I'd probably go with something that, that had been used, gets used by a lot of people already, like Postgres or something. Yeah. Cause there, like, there's
1: a lendiness to it.
0: You know, it's just like, uh, I don't, I doubt. They're using, they're actually using it. They probably know more than I do. Even if the other ones look better, like I'm probably wrong. Um, Just that's not, that's not a generalized statement about people picking databases. Like there are situations where you should pick a new database that is not the more commonly used one. And if it was that situation, you would know it because you'd, you'd be like, no, no, no. This conventional was like, you'd have, you'd have really good reasons. I just don't, I don't have those reasons. So I don't choose it. So I don't, I don't know that there's like a, I don't. I think in general, there's not. uh, I think that's really one of the main things. There isn't a general rule. I think looking for the general rule is almost
1: the mistake. Mm. Uh, Zooming out for a second, um, you you recently turned forty. You've gone through a handful of startups. Um, You recently had a son. Um, I'm curious if you've noticed any kind of progression or evolution in kind of the macro maps of reality that you've used uh, to kind of interact with the world. Like if there's any underlying axioms that you've, uh, you know, changed your mind about over the course of time that have led to whether it's success or just a different perspective on how to interact with the world.
0: Yeah. I remember when I was really young, I first ran into like money and I was like, why do we have money? That seems dumb. Like I was sort of, I was an automatic naive communist. Why don't we just like, why don't people like my dad? I knew my dad was a lawyer. I was like, why did my dad just do lo- lawyer stuff? I didn't quite understand what it meant, but I knew he was like, that was a thing he did of value to other people. Why doesn't he just do lawyer stuff? And then like the grocery store should just give us food and like, why do we need all this money to keep track? I don't get yeah. it. Like it's we'd be reasonable. They'd be reasonable. it will be fine. And. As I got older, I think when I, I, I remember arguing with a bunch of my friend Ira about this. I, I, grappling with this problem and taking various sides of sort of these, you know, 14 year old intellectual debates, which are hilarious and eventually realizing like, oh, you need somehow you need to figure out like how much of which stuff should you make and put where and like how much each person consume of each kind of thing. And like this is so it, it finally hit me. It dawned on me how complicated the whole thing was, like like how how many things needed to be coordinated. And how you trying to solve that in like a. And I kind of eventually I kind of saw, oh, that if you could calculate the right answer, it would wind up looking a lot like the money answer. Like in de facto, mm. people would wind up doing largely, not 100%, but largely the same jobs and consuming largely the same stuff. The, the median person, maybe not billionaires and maybe not people at the very bottom, but like 70 or 80% of society would end up doing the same thing. And I was like, oh, I see. It's like, this is how we try to calculate the answer. Like, this is the way you get the coordination to figure out the answer to the question of like, you know, the grocery store will just give us the food. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. The grocery store does just give yeah. you the food. Like, that's how it works. But like, how do you figure out how much where? Oh, money. And then I remember I was starting my startup and we were first like, why do we need managers? Managers seem like, a, like people should do the work. And like, you have the CEO, I understand the CEO like, leadership. I understand that you need someone to like, we have a vision and a direction. And they kind of say where we're going, but like, why would you need like middle management? Like someone to man- whose whole job is managing people and they report to someone who's managing them. Like, what's their job? Like, Why does it even exist? And kind of trying it without that and like, and it not really working and trying to understand why and eventually coming to realize like, oh, like it's like the money thing again. Like you to get everybody pointed in the right, like. What if we didn't have managers? Well, we still like, we we need to do, and you kind of went up coming up with all these things that need to happen. And we'll distribute those tasks among people, and you realize like, oh, we've we've recreated management with a different like a bunch of extra steps. But it's this is we have a manager again, and kind of realizing like hierarchy was this was a was another technique like money that's a way of getting people organized and coordinated. And as I would almost describe like most of my dawning understandings of the world of democracy, the same thing with democracy, where I was like, wait, why do we need democracy? Like at first I was like, oh, of do- course we need democracy because like it's just received wisdom. Of course, you need democracy. And then I went through this period of like democracy. Why? Why would we need democracy? Like, this is st- a pop. We're, wait, wait, we're going to run our let me get this straight. We're running our society on popularity contests. That's our <laughs> best idea. Truly. There's no <laughs> way that's right. And then kind of realizing of it, coming back around and realizing, like, oh, this this is load bearing in a bunch of ways that aren't obvious at first, but like you actually can't pull it. It does a thing. It does it. It does an important coordination mechanism that cannot be wished away and that you can replace it with alternate coordination mechanisms that then have their own downsides and upsides. But you can't just like will it away. It's doing something. Um, And I would describe like 90% of my intellectual journey in life is sort of this ongoing. Realization over and over again, that like Coordination is a cost and a, a job. It's a real thing people are doing. And, like, you can't, you, you, in fact, you could argue that coordination is probably one of the most important exports. So if it, a sufficient amount of coordination can often supplant the need to do, like, it, like you, you can hundredfold your output on food or steel or. You know uh uh you know therapy or whatever, like with just better coordination, and that most of our problems, the hard problems start out to be almost entirely coordination problems.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: everything else is e- once you get people aligned and put it in the right direction with right. a goal that makes sense and sufficient information, everybody knows what's going on, the actual problems are hard they're like relatively easy like they're, yeah. they're not not trivial, but like mining stuff or like manufacturing is easy once everyone knows exactly what they're doing in the right place at the right time and sufficient how much of what to do that's most of the work in fact and like that gets and that, gets incre- that is becoming increasingly so with industrialization and, and computers that, that wasn't true perhaps uh, 2000 years ago if you're a subsistence farmer coordination is n- well at a very high meta level your issue actually is 100 you lack coordination you lack the technologies to enable coordination In your day to day, coordination wouldn't help you very much, Um, but but truly, like what you need is roads and and uh, uh, telecommunications and transportation technologies are like, that's what makes us rich way more than manufacturing. Um, You know, give one side roads and telecommunications and the other side, like really great factories for making stuff and the roads and telecommunications team will smash the team production. that's so why I don't understand people who think that Infotech is like some like some weak counterpart to actual production. Like. I would take Team Infotech against Team Manufacturing any day. Like it's not even close. Um, you, you don't pick Infotech makes manufacturing better. Manufacturing is required for projects. So you don't you don't actually pick. But like. Were you to have a society that had like cell phones and satellites fighting against a society that didn't have them and only had like, you know, guns and and no communications and overflight and perfect knowledge of everything all the time, the coordinated team would just smash you with rocks. Like they know exactly where you are at all times. They'd melt your You could never catch them. Like, like you're, 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 uh, and people really miss that. They miss how important communicate. You know. And so I think that's my, that And I think as a kid, yeah. I missed that too. It's, it's really not obvious. And so you've like tried to do things without coordination mechanisms and realized, oh man, this shit's hard. It's real hard. I'm
1: gonna put in a request for a, a coordination thread or a, a one-hour uh, TED talk. I think this is a fascinating topic. Um, from uh, for 99% of human history, uh, access to opportunity um, has been a function of your geography. Over the last, you know, three decades, that's changed. I think, especially from 2020 until now, we've seen this oscillation from like. Uh, we're starting to, to recognize the importance of kind of your digital zip code. Uh, and then during COVID, it was really important. And now maybe the pendulum has swung slightly back. Um, how important are people's physical versus digital zip codes today? And how do you see that evolving over the near future? And I think it's particularly interesting given you're located in San Francisco, uh, okay. you're assisting YC. Uh, there's a lot of geographical Components here. YC's back
0: in person, um, and not. Yeah, you're answering.
1: very active on Twitter at the same time.
0: Yeah, hundred um, percent. I think online is still a deep, deeply very much a supplement to in person. Um, someday that won't be true. Someday we will have perfect, high res, low latency VR with like predictive encoding, so that the latency from here to the East Coast doesn't ruin the phone call, but mm-hmm. We're pretty far from that today. There's a reason why all the like top startup, you know, the number of unicorns, however you want to measure it, it's like the Bay Area just dominates everything. Where your physical location matters a lot. Um, you know, just ask someone who's, you know, in Brazil, if it matters that they're in Brazil versus being in the United States. Like it matters. It, it's it, there's a there's more opportunity in the United States than there are in most countries still. Um, that said, it depends a lot on what you're doing. There are certain kinds of jobs. If you're a Twitch streamer, you don't have to be anywhere in particular. You can do that from pretty much anywhere. Um, although I'll note, they tend to congregate into LA because they want to make the next step in their career. And if you want to be an entertainer, well, you can be a Twitch streamer anywhere for your entertainment career. It really does help to move to LA. And so they wind up doing it. And like, uh, I think people have overstated death of geography quite a bit. Um, I think instead what's really happened is we've added the question how good are you at using these online tools as well, it's sort of this multiplier between the two, and if you're really good at the online tools you can actually probably have a, quite a bit of influence without being geographically local and, if you're, and if, you're lo- if you're doing a great job local, you would gain a lot usually by being better at the online tools but it's weird, like I was at a party the other night. I met three people who were moving from elsewhere who I, or people I knew from Twitter who are moving from elsewhere to the Bay Area. Two mm. of them said they were moving in whole or in part because I convinced them to online wow. talking to them. And I actually think the internet's causing more a sort of a sort of uh, geography rather than less like you are people are more able and willing to move to the Bay Area because they already have a social network in the Bay online. Right. And weirdly, those networks become quite geographically like uh, condensed, much more th- much more so than you would expect. Like the, the network I'm in is like Bay Area, New York, and then a smattering of people, London to some degree, and then a smattering of people elsewhere. But like New York, London, Bay Area, like a vacuum pulling those people in. And you know, some people won't move, but like, it's. I think in a prior era, few even fewer of those people would have moved because they wouldn't have felt confident they were able to do it, and now they do.
1: I think we've seen that with Austin and Miami as well uh, over the, over the last few years. Um, you get to decide Paul Graham's next essay. What what is it and why?
0: Uh, I mean the the problem with dictating essays to other people is that fundamentally the what makes the really good one is, is when they get interested in an interesting topic and they're pulled yeah. forward. But if I was to wish Paul was to get interested in a really interesting topic, I really enjoyed this essay. I don't see referenced that often the refragmentation um, that's about it's sort of about how society uh, was more fragmented, got kind of got pulled together briefly by media and by uh, productive for pr- production and coordination forces into being more temporarily more coherent. And then it's, we've re- decohered again into a more fragmented society. But the, this sort of, a, it's in many ways, it's the refragmentation, it's returned return to normal in some ways. Um, mm. And I thought that was fascinating. And I would, I would sort of, I would want, I'd want to hear more about, uh, I'm interested in theory, in, in, if you know, I was like, I think it's interesting when Paul writes about startups, he's written a lot about startups and I'm also not actively doing a startup at the moment. I want to hear about like uh, society, right? Like uh, what what are the forces, what's going on with like uh, the level of political uh, separation or like uh, what are the fundamental dynamics of how social media has, you know, is, is altering the world or, you know, I wouldn't have picked um, uh, the refragmentation idea. Like it would, would have occurred to me to pick that thing, but something in sort of that area of, uh, theorizing about what's going on in society. Cause like, I actually think Paul made a couple of mistakes in that essay. not, not everything, but I like think a couple of points. I'm like, I don't know if I agree with that, but like, it's an interesting topic. And I think it's, that's, for me, that's the area of the world I'm most interested in learning about and thinking about right now.
1: Between Justin TV and Twitch, I I think you're uniquely positioned to give a response to this next question. Um, in In your opinion, are parasocial hangouts or relationships, so anywhere from streaming to podcasting to reality TV, a net positive or negative for humanity. And I understand I'm overgeneralizing there. I think there's a, a gradient here. Um, right. But, it, but, but what's your value judgment on them?
0: Um, at
1: an individual level, they're definitely a win.
0: I don't think they're like drugs. I think they're like. Uh, like multivitamins. Like there are some things that are like cigarettes where like you might like it, but it's probably not good for you. Um I don't think this quite fits in that category. I think it's more like you're not getting if you the people I know who get plenty of social interaction might watch some reality TV or like, you know, listen to some use do some parasocial stuff. But it's like they don't do that. The People who are really into it are into it because they're they're lacking that social vitamin. And this is how they get
1: it. Is it? And is I don't think it's the the, I think it's an effect, true... not a cause. Is that no, no, at yeah. the cause? That's of... my point. It's, I think it's, a, it's okay. an effect, not a cause. They're yeah.
0: They're using it because they lack the social vitamin. It's not the use of it that's causing it. Um, uh, which, you know, in that way, it's like uh, the people who smoke cigarettes are often people who have a lot of anxiety and the cigarettes aren't causing the anxiety. Cigarettes treat anxiety. That's why they're smoking. Um, and, uh, and that's like, uh, I think that's people underestimate that degree to which People are lonely because we've destroyed the fabric of social connection and, and they're treating the loneliness with parasocial relationships, which is good because without that, they'd be even worse off. Um, and I have several friends for whom you know people I've met and people I've heard stories from but for whom Twitch was a... They were very depressed. They were very lonely. They were in a very dark place. And Twitch was the pathway out. It was the, the lowest intimacy form of social connection which they could actually stand, they could do it. And it was a bridge out to more in-depth social connection and eventually being uh, in a better place. And like, I think that's great. I think that's a good thing. It's not a solu- The problem is it's also not a solution to the underlying problem. at all. Right.
1: That was going to be my next question is yeah. it, it's a low barrier, but it's also a partial solution, but are people going to get trapped in that local maxima and, and never go pursue the, it, the full solution?
0: I don't think it's that it traps people in the local maximum. That's it's sort of like that's it's like you know we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't put band aids on wounds because it'll stop them from like getting the you know don't tourniquet to their arm it'll stop them from getting the the gushing blood treated no no if you had a thing to treat the gushing blood they would go do that the problem is like what are they supposed to do instead right. what's this alternative thing on offer and I think that's actually the big the big question one of the things I care the most about actually is the sort of question of building community. I think it has a lot to do with. How we build cities, how we build you know, architecture. Um, our tax structure, a bunch of fundamental things about how we structured society have pushed people in towards this atomized direction, mm-hmm. and we should be doing the opposite and pushing them back away from that and incentivizing. You don't even have to incentivize. That's like, that's like a little bit paternalistic to the point, enabling. Like like creating an economic framework and a social city structure framework where if what you want is to be part of a social fabric with people who you continue to connect with uh, and you build a deep relationship with, that's like possible and you don't get priced out. And there's like uh, there's some way to to actually do that in a meaningful way. Um, And I think that's that is a. I have a lot of ideas. That's that is its full own, you know, ten hour thing. Like it's a, If I had a really easy way to do that, I would just go do it. Um, I just, but I think it's very
1: important. Maybe you can come back on and we can uh, dig into that one. Um, I don't think you're yet at the. I'm not going to be. I'm not going to pretend to be inside your head right now. But I, I'm not sure if you're thinking about what's next after YC. But I am curious about the criteria and the weighting that you'll use to decide what is next. Uh and maybe if there if there already are problems or spaces you're you're considering, I'd love to hear those as well.
0: Um I think the most important work to be done today is articulating a vision, positive vision of the future. And it's funny everyone knows that and they talk about it. And you see all these people producing fan art of the vision of the future they'd like to see and desperate to see it, but it's all retreads of like previous Ooh. visions. And that's because making an actual vision of the future is really, really hard. Um, and weirdly, the only people who seem to do that anymore are actually science fiction authors. Um, maybe they're the only people who ever did. Um, <laughs> science fiction authors and like ideologues, uh, some combination of the two. Yeah, uh, And uh, philosophers. Philosophers and science fiction authors. And so I guess I want to try to do that I don't know if that means, if that actually means writing science fiction or philosophy, or there's some other way to address the problem. But like, that's the that's my ambition is to sort of articulate a vision of the future that is that is can be inspiring and that can be a a vision that other people can build towards
1: and believe it. Well, the, the final question I ask everyone uh, to flip it around on you is what's what's one question you'd leave me and listeners with whether to think about or act on? Um,
0: we have a, a lot of debates in our society that come down to whose ox is going to get gored, which is to say, you know, we only have finite resources and Taking money from X means not having it for Y, and that is just the, that is the truth. And there's some amount of you know funny money you can print and like you know increase productivity to spread around and whatever, but like there's just limits to that. It's it's after that, okay, cool, and then it's still finite. We still have finite resources to trade around. And when I look out the world, uh, I think that the que- that question is fundamentally a zero sum question. And the question I I would ask you and for, you know, any listener is like, can you find a place where that's not the trade-off where we can just do better and it's not, doesn't require anyone to lose. And I would ask you, why are we spending all this time debating who's, who's gonna, who's the loser and the winner should be over here. Instead of figuring out how we do this important thing more efficiently. And what are those places, the things that could be more efficient where we have plenty of resources? The issue is not resources. In fact, if anything, we could have, we could cut the amount of resources in half and get twice as good of an outcome. And how do we do that? What's what's stopping us? And what can we, you know, what are those areas? Even just identifying and saying it out loud is very helpful for everyone to have the same idea. Like, well, we're being inefficient about these things. How could we do better?
1: Is that that's first the, or foremost a a story or a narrative or a game mechanic, and maybe the the two go hand in hand? Um, I think the question of identifying it
0: is sort of a that's a story. It's like you know it's it's, it's sort of figuring out. Um, I mean, we talked about public schools earlier, right? Public schools in my mind are a great example of this. The issue potentially thirty years ago might have been we don't spend enough money, but it certainly isn't that now. We spend tons mm-hmm. of money. The question is. Why is that not more effective? But what's 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 not effective about that? And uh, I wish I had the answer to that question. Actually, this is this is why I leave it as the the question for the audience. Like, yeah. I think being really interested in that question is very important because I think that people spend a lot of time interested in the question of well, should we take this money from this public school and give it to that public school, or like, should we tax people more for the public schools, or should we have this who? Who is? How do we move the, the resources around? Instead of the, in my mind, more interesting question of like, why isn't why aren't they why isn't the resources we're putting there working? What's yeah. what's broken about the system? And that's a that's a fundamentally an analytical question. Actually, I don't even. I think I have a deep presumption that if we knew what the answer was, we would just do
1: it. Great, great point. Excellent. Uh, well, Emmett, thank you so much for your time. This this was a blast, uh, and I have a bunch of other questions. I'd love to, to get to it some other time, um, yeah. but thank you.
0: It was very fun. Thank you for having me.